Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. This is the worst idea I have ever had. <laughs> You've had much worse ideas. It'll be well, fun. That's true. <laughs> Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the abominable task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt and today we have an an abominably large four-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and worthy Allison Fitch. Say free hello, Allison. Good evening. And finally, we're rejoined by another semi-novice fan who's not been seen on this podcast since the first two episodes, the inaugural episodes the laconic but not moronic danny celadon hello danny <laughs> hello <Woo-hoo>. also <laughs> april fools he read star trek with us he did indeed he did before we get to talking but he hasn't been on this podcast oh, yes, yes in this, right. the being recorded in this not to be disclosed location let's just say we're not in someone's house and that's why you're hearing ac in the background before we get to talking about the book please remember our new patreon page you know where it is depending on the amount you give per month you'll receive among other possible goodies a random chosen uh bbc book not a target book we know you have them as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We also have a new discussion group where you, can, you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, and best of all, it's on Goodreads. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. In that same discussion group, our patron Bart Lammy said of the book we're about to discuss, When I was a kid, I must have read this soon after Time Meddler and started mixing up the monastery details between the two. Oh, yes, I did too. Uh, did also, you really? Yes. Okay, Different then. religions, but there's still a big monastery to rattle around in. Yeah, it happens. It happens. So hopefully, he says, hopefully you guys get in at least one GI pun. The Great Intelligence. GI. Yeah, because this book is essentially a GI tract. Oh, that, that's, that's pretty good and yet shameful at the yeah, same time. Yeah, it made my GI tract yes. feel bad. So we, we live to serve, Bart. So there you go. I don't know. I think I think he might deserve some sort of prize for that. But maybe just, a Target book. Oh well, he's not getting one. The inaccurately named monster season of Doctor Who continues now with Terence Dick's novelization of the Abominable Snowmen. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. 
Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowman, adapted by Terrence Dix for the script, written by Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, that aired from 9.30.67 to 11.467, published by Target Books in November 1974. As of this recording in September of 2018, this title is currently available as a reproduction for BBC Books and as an unabridged audiobook, 142 pages. Also available to us is Dalton Hughes, whose birthday is tomorrow, so it's all good. So of all things to have for your birthday, this book. The Abominable Snowman. Yes. This book holds a special place in the target range, and for a number of reasons. One of them being its numbering. While it was actually the tenth book released in the range, it's numbered as number one. In fact, I'm going to pass around the... uh, 80s version of it, and if you look on the spine, there's a bold number one on it. Did anyone else, when they first saw the illustration of the Yeti, think of maybe uh, something else? No. What were you thinking of, dear? I don't like to say it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it does look like a giant ball sack. Is it really? going to use the adjective scrotal. Oh, okay. Well, Doctor Who's known for having... Well, the illust- like so we scrotal. have a different illustration on the cover of the one you handed us than we had on the PDF also. I'm thinking That's more of the true. PDF one, but they do have quite wide... I, it's a similar hips. shape, though. Yeah. Yeah. They are rotating. Well, here's the Turkish version, and that yes. does have it. Yes, the Turkish version. Yeah, I guess it's an overlay of the same, sort of a tracing of the same. Anyway, while, while they're all talking about the, um, the scrotal sack of the <laughs> Yeti, I'm going to talk about the numbering of these books. <laughs> For some reason, when Target decided to number the books retroactively in 1983, they decided that everything from before 1983 should be numbered in alphabetical order rather than the order in which they were released. That's why they were... We've never ever covered... Wait, what? Yeah. Someone decided to (laughs) number a series of books in alphabetical order. Yes. It's not like when they redid the Chronicles of Narnia to be chronological in order of the story instead of composition. No. So, Abominable Snowman's number one. Auton Invasion, of course, is up there as well. Because Who would possibly want previously. that to happen? Who was no the idea. audience for that? I have no idea. And it, it doesn't work. Because every Doctor Who fan I know puts them in story order in the, on their shelves, as well, you would. It's like, or you why would put them in order in which they were written or released. Yes. But alphabetical. Pick, 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 yeah. pick a catalog. Pick a way to catalog. Don't yeah. do alphabetical <laughs> and then number it. That's stupid. And then, the devil's work. <laughs> here's the thing. They start doing the numbering in 1983, and they start at number one alphabetically, but then everything released from 1983 onwards is numbered sequentially. So Time Flight is that released that year. It's numbered sequentially. The next book after that is like 145, then 146, which means the books in the 80s are all sequential. This is demented. It is. <laughs> so we don't know why. That's why we've never covered the numbering in this show. No. It's also notable for being the very first novelization of a Patrick Troughton story, and obviously the first time that Pat, uh, Terrence Dix will write for the second Doctor. Mm. And as we've seen from the way other writers handle him, he really creates the template for writing about Troughton. And given that he knew Troughton personally since he was the assistant script editor at the end of Trouton's tenure and co-writer of his last story, he knows the character well. This is also one of the books that BBC decided to reprint a few years back, I mean literally two years back, Mm. along with an introduction by no less than science fiction author Stephen Baxter. I don't have a copy of that, unfortunately, and I didn't give you the copy. Instead, I gave you the original version. The original version didn't do too shabbily either. It was translated into French, Turkish, and Portuguese. <laughs> I showed you the Turkish version. Mm-hmm. 
we have the French version, still with Igor and Grichka Bogdanov on Ooh, the la, front. La. Yes, the really cute couple who then later became addicted to plastic surgery and now look really horrific. They look like Dr. Who villains. Well, it it looked like like Hans and Franz and entire... A little bit. These were two physicists who created papers in the 80s that were kind of, um, well, they didn't make sense even to other physicists, and (laughs) they presented sci-fi on French television, so to my generation of French television viewers, they would be known as kind of like the... uh, Hans and Fra- and, and, and Bill Nye, yeah. I'm the Millie Vanilli, kind the of. The Millie Vanilli <laughs> yes. version of Bill Nye. Very good. But it also means that I can read the uh, description of the, the book on the back. This and, is a better yet. But yeah. notice yes. that the doctor on the front is the like bags. a cross between Patrick Troughton and Tom Baker. Yeah. yeah. Because the illustrator obviously did not know anything about... This is true of all the French editions. <laughs> and Victoria's just kind of relaxing on the cliff face. And there. Jamie's going to break his hand uh, holding the sword that way. Yes. But, okay. And I have no idea. Does that one have illustrations inside it? Not no. that I see. None of the French ones do. No. Which is just bizarre. Hmm. They did not translate it into German or Japanese for some reason. I do have some of those, but those are like Kurtwee stories. The fact that the novelization is so important makes its contrast with its televised version even more peculiar. For one thing, we have only episode two of the original six. Six episodes, this story is. It's a long one. It's very packed with twists and turns. It is, but the televised version is just long. All we have are telesnaps and audio recordings, and frankly, it's hard going because this story has no incidental music at all. Mm. That, I don't know. That, Imagine that. Most, I find sometimes the most off-putting thing. It is. And the worst... I have to have an American. I have to be told how to feel during action sequences. <laughs> exactly. And on top of it all, the Yeti have no sound effects. They don't roar. They don't growl. They're not scary at all. They're not scary. They look like big old teddy bears. What about Scrubble the uh, teddy bears? What about the inner sanctum? We're told. We're told about the voice that comes from everywhere, but nowhere. that is awesome. Because when we hear the voice of Padma Sadmava, Padma Sadmava, Padma Sadmava, now he'll appear in the mirror. Yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say. It. See what you did. That actor does an incredible job of not only doing the. Ethereal voice of Padmasadmava and the great intelligence when it's speaking through him. It's a brilliant, brilliant performance. But it's also long and drawn out as if to say, hey, we got six episodes to cover. (laughs) We have time. He speaks slowly. He speaks slowly. And it's also unclear why the music and the Yeti sound effects are lacking, but the story came about because one of the writers encountered Trout, both of them were actors, and he complained that there weren't enough stories set on Earth. As a result, they came up with this, and both the Great Intelligence and the Yeti would eventually return. In fact, the Great Intelligence has turned up three times in the new series, played by Richard E. Grant hmm. each time. Now, are there, sound, are there sort of weather sound effects? Because I imagine a lot There's of this girl with a lot of sort of whipping wind, yes. and I thought he did a good job and of describing a harsh, lean, desolate, cold yeah. landscape. And you'll hear the chanting, and you'll hear the bells, but it's just ambient sound effects, basically. It's like the air conditioning that keeps going off in here. <laughs> That's about all you hear. But Richard E. Grant, at least, is interesting, because he's played a version of the Ninth Doctor twice. Yeah, that one gets really complicated. We'll get there eventually, because they novelize that story, so we have to cover it. <laughs> Among others, there are three notable actors in the cast. Norman Jones, who'd be come back to the series twice more, plays Crisong. 
The part of Tomney was played by David Spencer, who was the same-sex life partner of occasional script editor and soon-to-be scriptwriter Victor Pemberton, who himself plays Jules in The Moonbase. Mm. Given that we're still not sure whether Jerry Davis is homophobic or not, I kind of like to imagine a Doctor Who production office that's this war between Jerry Davis and the homophobes and Victor Pemberton being all French over here with his lover. Um, <laughs> yeah. Travers was played by none other than Deborah Watling's father, Jack Watling. But despite all the rumors, the part of Rapachan, or Rapachan, Rapachan, that's it, was not played by the playwright Harold Pinter who had already given up his equity card by that point. For this novel, the then-current producer of the show, Barry Letts, who is a practicing Buddhist, asked Terrence Dix to change various different terms and names in the book version to be more accurate, which is why one of the many, many changes that improve the story. It was a lot less condescending and it's a small world after all than I expected it to be, so that makes sense. So, which of us is going to read the back cover, because I'm going to read the French back cover. Oh. Oh, yes. Oui. I vote for uh, Danny, because we don't hear his voice as often. That's true. Else's voice. Sure. <laughs> the Tibetan monks at the monastery of Detsen are worried pregnant men. Many of their companions have been killed, and it seems the Yeti are the cause of all their troubles. But normally the Yeti, giant man-like creatures living in the remotest peaks of the Himalayas, are seen only very rarely and are notoriously timid. What is the explanation for their apparent transformation into ferocious brutes, monsters with glowing eyes and savage fangs who are spreading death and destruction in the isolated valley of peace? When the doctor arrives at the monastery, his first visit for 300 years, he expects to be welcomed with open arms. But because of the mysterious killings, the reception that awaits him is anything but friendly. That is different than what we have for the PDF version. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Oh, okay. Well, Dalton, why don't you read? Because that's the 1980s reprint. Yeah. Dalton, the the one that read? we have for the PDF is just two short paragraphs. Okay. A sing- it has parts of that, but it's not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, a single blow from the giant Harry Paul smashes the explorer to the ground. Terrified, he flees from the monster's glowing eyes and savage fangs. Why are the peaceful Yeti now spreading death and destruction? And what is the secret behind the glowing cave on the mountain? When Doctor Who discovers a long-dead friend is still alive, he knows why his visit to the lonely Himalayan monastery has led to a struggle to save her. Okay, that is different. And the French version is also different, except it's really, really, really short. Au cours de l'Himalaya, le Doctor Who parviendra-t-il à élucider le mystère du monastère de Detsen et à découvrir le secret maléfique du venerable maître Padmasambhava. In other words, in the in the heart of the Himalayas, will Doctor Who manage to solve the mystery of the Detsen Monastery and to recover the secret evil of the venerable master Padmasambhava? So, yeah. So secret evil. Secret <laughs> evil. So... What did you think? Let's get started with this one. Danny, first thoughts on it? Uh, well, the first two or three chapters, I was convinced it was going to be... It's going to be a standard kind of Doctor Who novelization that, you know, Doctor shows up, something bad happens, and then there's some sort of, some sort of twist that usually shows up in these stories. But I kind of feel like this one... 
takes its time revealing what the what the the evil what the prote- uh, antagonist is doing. So there there was that at least. True. And on television, it takes a long time to get there too. You yeah. know about the Yeti, but you know about nothing else. Right. All right, uh, Dalton. Yeah, I I had a similar feeling. I I was expecting it to to turn, and it was going to be some big bad that we've met in the past that was coming back. Maybe it's the Daleks. Maybe it's the Cybermen. Maybe it's some something doing something. But yeah, I was just like, where is this going? Why is it taking so long? Why is there so much back and forth? Well, they just keep going from the monastery back up the mountain to the cave. Back down to the monastery, back up to the cave. And it's like... Uh, like what Cotton parodied on the Iliad when people are constantly crossing back and forth on the plane between the city yes. and the beach. Yeah. And yes. he's talking about them like running laps for exercise across the plane. There's one forth. part where Travers literally goes up to the cave and is like, oh, the monastery. And then turns right back around <laughs> yeah. and goes right back. And it's like, exactly. how long did you go up there Getting for? Getting his cardio. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely true. Well... Yeah, there is that. I mean, there's a lot of running around in this story, but imagine having to wait six weeks to see all this running around with yeah. no no incidental music and no real sound effects. Yeah. And that being said, it, it works better on the page than it does on television. No, the, the writing, it's actually, I, I enjoy the book, um, but some of the menace of the Yeti gets lost. Yeah, you know, when yeah, the book yeah. starts with mm-hmm. them being terrifying and people being killed. Yeah. And then the rest of the book is just like, oh, well, if he's not paying attention, then they're not doing anything. Right. They're just standing there. We can throw a rock at it. Have you thought up some clever plan, Doctor? Yes, Jamie, I believe I have. What's he going to do? Bung a rock at it. I can literally <laughs> walk past them and they, like, yeah. Yeah. the Doctor realizes it. It's just like, oh, yes. well, why are they, what? Okay. That'll, yeah. that'll change. That'll change by the time we get to the next appearance, because by then they're properly terrifying. They're roaring, they've got glowing eyes, and they, they kill all everything. So, there is that. Given that this is early Terrence Dix, it's slightly better written than anything else by Terrence Dix that we've read. We can tell he cares. I would say it's the best Dix we've seen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, he seems to be enjoying himself more than he was in some of the ones that we read earlier, but he wrote later. Yeah, he's not yet crushed down by the grind, because at this point he's not the only one writing the series. He's just kind of the managing editor of the series. He hasn't used up all his little ideas yet. No. Not at all. I mean, not to be condescending, but all yeah. sort of, you know, flourishes and thoughts for how to create atmospherics. He's still going through his techniques. Well, I think it's hilarious that some of those techniques are already getting set up, because this is only his third book, and he's already describing the TARDIS as wheezing and groaning. And that's something <laughs> he's always going to do later. We're going to hear that description so many times when we get to uh, the late Baker era, or, for that matter, uh, Pertwee era. Um, what were some of the things you liked most about it? I, I really like how, at the very beginning of the story, the Doctor thinks he's going to have this, you know, really nice reception from all the monks, and <laughs> instead he's, he's thrown into a cell, and it kind of made me wonder how many times in his adventures he's, he's kind of had this kind of reception, mm. and it makes me think, I wonder if he's, he's ever just said, yeah, fuck this, I'm, I'm going back to the TARDIS, you can deal with this. 
I'm sure it's happened at least once, but not this early on. This early <laughs> on, everything's an adventure. It's not quite as dark, though, as the, the new series, because it, here, something has happened in the last 300 years, but it's not his fault, and in the new series, it would be something he accidentally set into motion, probably, or That's in some way true. inadvertently responsible for. As a matter of fact, that bell, that keepsake... Mm-hmm. I kept thinking that that was going yes. to be the focus yeah. that the Green yeah. Because he took it away, he somehow took away their protection or something? Yes, because um, there's a there's a fan-produced video in the 90s called Downtime, which brings back Victoria Waterfield and Travers. And it brings back Sarah Jane Smith, hmm. which is pretty amazing. And it's the first story to introduce um, Kate... Lethbridge Stewart, who is now the head of a unit in the new series. It's our first introduction to her as a character. But... This is a non-canon It's non-canon. Interesting. Except it has Kate Lethbridge Stewart in it, so it's kind of sideways canon. Huh. <laughs> it's it, Because it was done as a uh, fan film, but also as a book. And the weird thing about that one is there is a focus that the great intelligence is looking for. It's an object of some sort, and so, yeah. of course, I went into this not knowing the story very well at all, because I just could not push myself through the recordings ever. I thought that the bell was going to be the uh, focus of some story. Well, and they yeah. keep talking about the, the sound that the Doctor is hearing from mm-hmm. wherever. Mm-hmm. And that would make sense, to have a sound cue or something that is sonic that leads into that. Well, and no. when Jamie finds the sort of the glowing metallic... Balls that uh, yeah, I thought there was going to be some sound effect with that, and they respond mm-hmm. yeah. to another tone from the bell. Like, <laughs> Dixon you know. balls and GI tracks. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, <laughs> there was a there was a scene with Victoria when the when she first went to the the inner sanctum mm-hmm. when she was on the outside, and he described a lot of the the artifacts that were there, and I really liked the the way that. She, as she's standing there, kind of viewing everything, she realizes that all of these items really are priceless. Yeah, that this is stuff that really is lovely and beautiful and meaningful to the monastery, mm-hmm. and it's like irreplaceable. Right. And I wonder, I wonder if the removal of the bell allowed the great intelligence to take on the monastery, because it sounds like the great intelligence made contact with Padmasadmava not long after the Doctor's first visit. So it seemed like there was a connection there. There might have been something in the original scripts and the script writers just sort of like, ah, no, we're not going to do that. That's a little too easy. Are we we ever told anything more about the the great intelligence? Well, not much more than what's here. Here's the thing. (laughs) This is what fan lore can do. According to fan lore, and according to every other interpretation that's been done of the Great Intelligence since, he's one of the Lovecraftian older gods. Okay. So he's one of those. It's like, okay, I can kind of see that. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the, um, the uh, nesting consciousness of the Autons from the first episode of the new series. Um, there's, oh yeah, um, the Zarbi. Um, the um, the animus mm-hmm. yeah. that is also considered one of the old gods on, in family lore. Okay. So that's about all we know. Okay. What we do know is that even in the new series, when the great intelligence keeps coming back, it's trying to make itself physical. Okay. Yeah. So that's about all we do know about it. I thought it was interesting. The doctor actually says, "Quote in this book: 
the intelligence has supernatural powers, and it will use those. Yeah. What kind of powers? That's it, Victoria, nervously. Well, it'll probably try to hypnotize you, said the doctor, but usually, you know, it's usually a Scooby-Doo scenario mm-hmm. where what appears to be supernatural is somehow scientific or tricks. Yes. It was interesting that they, that uh, Dix put the word supernatural in the doctor's mouth. Here. Oh, I agree. And I think, given it's... I can't really go into details about its second appearance, but... Those details tend to be less supernatural and much more scientific. So the way it's dispatched in that story is a lot more scientifically based. So I'm betting that the writers were just trying to do something with the you know monastery setting and the mysticism of the Buddhists. And well, such. and then having having the doctor say that the great intelligence is supernatural, but then the doctor himself being able to hypnotize people in a similar fashion. I was just about to bring that up. So, is the great intelligence just using parlor tricks, or is it really actually all powerful and supernatural? Yeah, I would think that it's using whatever power the Padmasatma bot has. Yeah. Yeah. And then at at the end, with with them them having Victoria do that chant to kind of bar Mm -hmm. him, Mm-hmm. That that was that's more of just like a closing your ears off thing. Yes, more of focus as opposed to it doesn't actually work. <laughs> well, it comes close to it though. Yeah, and that, that's true. That's yeah. A lot of the mysticism around the great intelligence in this story gets lost in the second. And by the time the great intelligence is trying to make itself felt on Earth through Wi-Fi. <laughs> In the new series, <laughs> you remember oh, that story. That, yes, yes. That's the great intelligence. Don't log on. Okay, yes. Though I will say that story has one of the most chilling moments in any Doctor Who story I've ever seen. When the great intelligence finally releases its quizzling that it's been using on Earth, the older woman, mm-hmm. and she says, "I've known you all my life. What am I going to do now?" And he basically says, eh, "I don't know." And when they find her, she has the mind of a child. And is wondering yes. where her parents are because he took her oh, when she was a yes. child. Ugh. It is the most terrifying thing ever. Unit are here. Friends of the Doctor, I presume. Oh, old friends. Very old friends. Then I appear to have failed your great intelligence. I have feasted on many minds. I have grown. But now it is time for you to reduce. You've been whispering in my ear so long. I'm not sure I remember what I was before. Goodbye, Miss Kislet. Stay where you are! Mom, identify yourself. Where are my mum and daddy? They said they wouldn't be long. Are they coming back? And I kind of wish that there was something like that in this story, though. I will say, when, we, when you know, Padma Sadhava is finally released and you have that moment of him being relieved that he's finally going to be allowed to die, it's, it's, got, that, it's got an emotional resonance to it. Yeah, it's, he, he's, he wants it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's yearning for death. Yeah. And it comes across in the performance, too, at one point when he... Is you know going on about the evil plans that they're going to do, and suddenly he just breaks in on himself and says, "When will you allow me to die? This has been going on for ages and ages, and it's just sad." Yeah. So <laughs> we kind of like the great intelligence, and we will be seeing it again. 
we'll see the Yeti again. What else stands out about this? How about our regulars? How does uh, Troughton come, uh, the second Doctor, come across in this? And how about um, Victoria and Jamie? Got an interesting redundancy here in a paragraph about the Doctor. It starts off with the Doctor sighed wearily. This is all very pointless, you know. I assure you, no one's going to rescue me, least of all an abominable snowman. Is when he's being locked up early on. And then there's, you know, he, he goes on saying, you know, doesn't it occur to you that whoever is, you know, killing the monks might also kill me? And then the paragraph ends with, the doctor sighed wearily. This is all very point, and then gave up. And that's <laughs> uh, something new for this doctor, that he's just tired of the whole thing. That's yeah. more like what we've seen with how Hartnell's been written. That's where true. sort of world-weary. This one's usually more jovial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, some of the jovial, like, happiness is not there that yeah. I want. Which is weird, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but to go back to that scene, I found it interesting that the very first thought he has is not, oh, I hope I can get out of this. It's more like, oh, I hope uh, my companions aren't too bored. Yes, yes. (laughs) And then we are sure, nope, they are not at all bored. They are too afraid to be bored. (laughs) They're too afraid to be bored. (laughs) Yeah. As far as the jovialness, there are lots of bits of humor in the televised version that Dix does not include in the novelization. One of them, and I missed this, I was looking for it, one of them is when Jamie comes up with the idea of capturing the Yeti. He says, Doctor, I have an idea. And the Doctor looks at him in terror and starts backing away and says, Victoria, I think this is one of those moments when discretion is the better part of valor. (laughs) Jamie has an idea, let's go. And he actually leaves. Hey, Doctor, if you really want to capture one of these beasties, I think I have an idea that might just work. Oh, uh, Victoria. Hey? Uh, Victoria, I think this is one of those instances where discretion is the better oh. part of valor. Yes. Jamie has an idea. Come along. Yeah, and yet it works out perfectly fine because Jamie's plan works. In fact, it works better on TV than it does on the page because here they hoist the thing way too high and it comes to the ground with a bump uh-huh. and then the sphere comes out. And that does not ha- that does not happen in the uh, televised version. How does it happen in the televised version? They just drop it accidentally, oh. and the thing comes popping out. You would think they don't have the budget for a net and a wall. I'm done like, well, no, 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 no. They have the net Sorry. and the wall. It's just they drop the yeti onto the ground, and that dislodges the control unit, and then, yeah, it's kind of weird, really. <laughs> you would think that the great intelligence would have designed these things to be a little more um, secure. Yeah, also the, the scene where they put the spherical stone into it Ooh. as opposed to the control unit, and that yes. somehow keeps it from... Why should that have worked unless it's like obstruction? Obstruction. Well, is, it, is, it like a, <laughs> is it like a pressure plate like Indiana Jones? Where if <laughs> That's it's what like, I was thinking. If <laughs> anything is pressed... Put in up, a sandbag. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it could very well be. It may be something like that. It's weird that the sphere would give up, but maybe the sphere has detected that there's an obstruction and it can't get in. So it's a weird moment. Nothing like that happens in the second story. In fact, just to give away a little bit, at the very beginning of that story, we find that one of the control spheres survived and one of the robotic yeti did too. And they end up coming together again, and then the story proceeds from there. And we never hear anything about control spheres ever again. It's just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Indeed. (laughs) What else? 
Did we like Victoria more this time around? Because I'm I'm starting to come around on her character. To be yeah, she seemed like there was more for her to do. She did seem a little more involved. She kind of held her own. Not not so much of like I need to be saved. Yeah. So um, still not quite like the the heroine I want, but getting there. You yeah, know exactly. Sort of sort of starts off thinking she needs to be saved, but her. Uh, Confidence in Jamie and deference to his judgment uh, seems so consistently misplaced. She realizes that he's <laughs> realizes that he's actually not very helpful to have around. <laughs> oh, let's why we shouldn't go in the cave. It's dangerous. Well, maybe I'll wander in. Maybe I'll wander into the glowing metallic egg room. Maybe I'll yank out the ceiling supports that we're standing under. <laughs> so she does seem to learn that you know he he may be big and have weapons, but there's not necessarily that much going on upstairs. No, the claymore. The claymore. <laughs> yes, he grabs what? a claymore suddenly. You know what that is. On screen, when they're looking for the bell for the doctor, he finds the sword, and it's a scimitar. And he says, oh, I'm going to carry this around. And it's like, of course you're going to need it for later in the story. It's basically the Chekhov's gun. Yes. It's but later in the story, it. they come back and he has the scimitar. Yes. And not the claymore. Yes. So, so that's Dick's kind of forgetting. Like, And that's fine. That's up. that's an easy that's an easy mistake to but make. But they I did imagine, that. So. I don't remember if it was Jamie or if it was a different character. There was another story we read where there was mm-hmm. another character that just like magically had a thing that they never had before. And they acted like it was totally natural. Oh, you don't remember what that was? I don't remember which which story it was. Um, Might have been an Ian story. Might have been Stephen. I'm thinking it's one of the male companions because you're right. It was a male companion, and it it may have been Stephen. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, he met. He just has this thing that we've never Hmm. talked about, and just so happens to yeah be what we need for the story True. and it never gets brought up again. Oh, well, okay. listeners, now that we have that Goodreads group, you can tell us what it is that we're not getting. Jog my memory, please. Yes, jog it. Jog <laughs> it now. Yes. Is it usual for the doctor to be able to do hypnotism and memory once? It is now. Okay. From this point onward, in fact. He leveled up. He leveled up. He did indeed. With the regeneration, suddenly the Trouton Doctor has the ability to do hypnosis. And we're going to see him do it a few more times. I don't remember if the per- No, the Pertwee Doctor does do it, but he generally only does it to non-humans. <laughs> he does it to a dog. A big old dog <laughs> named Agador. Oh, Agador. While singing of the Lucian lullaby to the tune of... What is that song? It's Christmas Carol. That's it. It's God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And it's like, oh, bless. They have Christmas on Venus. <laughs> and the Tom Baker doctor does quite a bit of really creepy hypnosis because if you can imagine those huge staring eyes looking at you. And then you get to the seventh doctor, and so suddenly the seventh doctor is literally doing Jedi mind tricks. Mm. I remember showing an episode where he does this once, and the, the person I was showing it to said, oh, hell no. The doctor shouldn't be able to do this. It's like, he's always been able to do this. He just trots it out whenever he can. Uh, right. Yeah. I thought there was some humor in Jamie and Victoria kind of bumbling around, like, they're almost like two cats nosing into the cave. We probably shouldn't go in. Maybe, well, what's over here? Oh, let's go that way. Let's split up. We've never seen movies. And, but then they do... They haven't, though. They do, yes. Literally, they, they yes, haven't. Yes, they have not. Yes, yeah, so they don't know. You never split up, especially not in the monster cave. 
Um, or may, they may have caught a few episodes of uh, Scooby-Doo and the TARDIS. Yes, yes. Well, at one point, you know, they're, they're, they're splitting up. Jamie says, I'm going to go look over there. If you see the, the monster, if you see, see the Yeti, just yell. She's like, oh, don't worry, I'll yell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In fact, doesn't Dick make a reference to Victoria used the, her biggest asset, which is her lungs? Yeah. I missed that one. But. Yeah, it was uh, beginning of one of the chapters. It's when she puts the... Um, when she's forced to put the sphere back in the Yeti. And by the way, that thing because it becomes its own subplot in the televised version. Mm. Because the other monks that we don't hear much of in this version think she's a devil woman. And they that do phrase, call her that, yeah. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. why. That's a remnant of the television subplot where they think she's the one who's brought the Yeti. Which is just insanity. So luckily it's not here. Here it is, beginning of chapter 7. Not for the first time, Victorian's well-developed lungs came to her rescue. <laughs> yeah, they're well-developed, all right. Yeah. Says the rest of her. Oh, God. Kind of back Chesty to... woman. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. We're back to Jamie as a sort of bumbling noble savage again. Mike Myersing it up. But he's he's actually got some remnants of intelligence. Though. Yes, Even yes. Even the doctor at one but, point. But in such a way that we're marveling, oh, Jamie did something smart. Like, yes. it is an event where mm-hmm. we just expect, for example, Barbara and Ian to be smart. Right. Like, oh, they're there, brain cells. There is that one bit where Dix has the doctor thinking and saying, now, Jamie not, may not have book smarts, but he's got a very practical intelligence that's incredibly useful, which is yes. more than the televised doctor gives yes. him credit for. Yes. So I think that's Dix knowing that character quite well. So, story time. Jamie's accent is written in, but the English characters are not. And this is, of course, you know, a whole linguistic political thing. (laughs) When the people who aren't written, the characters who are not written, don't have the accents written in, are supposed to be speaking, like, proper or real English. But, of course, standard written English is kind of an illusion because there's no standard English accent. I know people natter on about English public schools in London or whatever. Or same pronunciation. Language is a democracy, not like a monarchy or a centralized bureaucracy. So my fun story is that there was a... So to reverse this, there was a um, Scottish uh, Greek scholar who did a translation of the New Testament into Scots, and only the devil speaks London English. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. But there is this implication that Victoria doesn't have an accent, the doctor doesn't have an accent, Mm -hmm. no one else does, but Jamie And the monks don't have accents. Yes, that Jamie is the weird one. I don't remember... In Huckleberry Finn, do both Tom and Jim... Are both Tom and Jim written with the accents? Yes, they are. In fact, the entire entire book... The entire book is written in... um, in Huck, in Huck's dialect, in a Huckleberry Finn. So there is that, yeah. And obviously, it's a convention that the TARDIS is translating them. We are spared the god-awful accents of the monks oh. on television, yes. Because Creesong doesn't even bother with it. The actor playing Tomney kind of does this whole kind of light lilt. But you'd expect that from a gay actor. Yeah. I, I do, anyway. <laughs> I, find it, I find it fascinating. But... The other, the other monks have this whole kind of, oh, but my son, you know, it's like, oh, at least we're spared that on the page. Yeah. And we're spared them on the page because Dix cuts so much of their stuff, and I'm glad of that. That improves the story. What else, what, yeah, what was there that, do do we know what 
Let's see. I actually assumed as we were reading through that he added a lot because there is so much event and such a sort of... It, it creates the illusion of a precise progressive revelation, even mm-hmm. though in retrospect it is kind of maybe a little more haphazard than it seemed to be. But right. there are more layers than you expect. There are. There are, surprisingly. And unfortunately, those layers involve you having to go up and down the mountain a lot. Yes. <laughs> which is unfortunate. Um, and they did still have a sense of menace that whenever they're not in the TARDIS or the monastery, they're exposed, and the Yetis could come at any time. They're not so that scary when they come, but the idea is that very rocky, very cold and windy, they don't yes. quite know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I, I thought he had good atmospheric menace throughout. There is that, and that comes across better on the page because <laughs> they filmed the story in Wales. In summer. <laughs> so imagine just going like to the Wales. Yeah, just gentle, like the Himalayas. No snow. <laughs> it had been raining. It was muddy. Oh, well. So when you see the telesnaps from the story, and you see the surviving footage of the Yeti kind of just walking around all over and being like, <laughs> um, it's hilarious. It's whereas a, it's like the Sesame Street typewriter. <laughs> yes, a little bit like that. <laughs> What are some of the things that are uh, different? I apologize. I'm going to have to look through my notes and find them. No, it's okay. Because there were tons of them. Um, The the only reason I bring it up is because as I was reading, we're introduced to a couple of characters, and then Mm -hmm. it's just like generic monks. Yes. And then a couple chapters later, it's like, here's this monk now that has a name that we care about all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. but he's never brought before. He never had a part to play... In, in any of these because other they scenes. had more to do on television. Yeah. The one that gets crushed by the Buddha, for instance, mm-hmm. um, is crushed by the Buddha because he's still out looking for Victoria. He still thinks that she's the one responsible. Oh. And so when he gets attacked by the Yeti and that's crushed by the Buddha, it's kind of like this coming around and bringing that storyline to a close. Whereas here, I forgot it happened. To be honest, I listened to this on audiobook and was, didn't even register. I mean, reading it was pretty gruesome, but yeah. other than that, it's just like, oh, okay, needless death. Oh, the death, death of the guy okay. at, at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. The televised story starts there. We don't get all of this backstory of Travers. That whole first two or three pages, that sticks. Mm. And it's brilliant. I say, I actually like that a lot. Yeah. It's, it, it's got very much the uh, beginnings of, say, King Kong or um, one of the Professor Challenger's um novels that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did. It's got that feel to it. It, it. it didn't make any sense at first why he had such animosity towards the Doctor until he reveals, you're from a rival expedition, yes. aren't you? And you're going to find my Yeti. Yes, and this is the <laughs> like, second time oh, in a row. Sense. Second time in a row that the Doctor's been mistaken for another scientist. Yes, a rival. Which is just hilarious. In the next story, he's going to claim that he and Victoria and Jamie are all monks. <laughs> it's like really they've, they've met a lot of different kinds of monks I guess so this is, is, it, is it like a exquisite corpse like they take a part from the last book and then <laughs> bring it to the next one and then so Possibly. last book he was a scientist okay this time he's a scientist okay this book had monks so next book they're going to be monks okay, yes it, it, it made it very difficult for the book writers in the 90s who were trying to tell stories between these stories to find a spot to do it. Yeah. Because yeah. this season is like linked. It's mm. like a story arc with Victoria being the beginning and ending of it. Mm. Which is nice. Okay. Still. 
Yeah. Um, but some of those changes, uh, I think it's that Dix knows that, as we talked about before, last time, Troughton's performance doesn't translate well to the page. So when he's sitting on a cot playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star when Tommy comes in, it doesn't really add a lot to the mystery of his character for Tommy, but when we see the Doctor through Tommy's eyes in the book, just lying there on the cot quietly with his eyes closed, and without a heart, without opening his eyes, he says, oh, are you here to release me? It's like, ah, okay. That makes a little more sense. It, um, it works better. I love the fact that he refers to himself as the Doctor in quotes. Even he knows that it's not his real name. Of course he knows. He knows it better than anybody else. Yeah. Chris Hong. Yeah. I had suspicions that, like, in other stories, he was going to, again, turn out to be some bad something. Yeah. And he's really just kind of a hard-ass. Yeah. Um, with, awesome with good intentions. Too. Yeah. But, yeah, he um, there's the, the line... Uh, if if men of peace are to survive, they they need men of war to protect them. Isn't that a great? Line? Um, I thought and I thought that was a good juxtaposition mm-hmm. of kind of like the i kind of even the ideas that the doctor talks about of oh, being yeah. like when to act and when not to act. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. a little keen on the human sacrifice. I saw it a little, <laughs> a little quick to turn to that option. I'll just tie him to the gate with the monster eat him. Oh yeah, but you have to admit, not none of the others knew he was going to do that. So. It does have a feeling of, you know, let's dunk her in water and see if she's a witch. Yes, if she yes, drowns, then yes. she is. It does have that feeling. Speaking of little witches, Victoria, that little trick with the water, making oh. them think that she'd been poisoned to get oh, out of the yes. cell. Oh, yes. Oh, the taste. Oh, yes. yes. And then slipping out of the cell, but then getting hypnotized into saying over and over again, danger, there is danger, you must take me away. I, I have to admit, listening to the story now has kind of resold beyond the late uh, Deborah Watling's performance because she does that pitch perfectly. She's just amazing in the story. So I apologize to the ghost of Deborah Watling for ever doubting you. <laughs> yes. Um, what else? What else? Lines that we liked. I have tons of lines that I uh, should really read to you because Dix is having a good time with this book. Yes. By the way, was Waterfield an antique stealer in his own time? I thought that was just something he was pretending to be in the 20th century so that he could raise money for the Daleks project in Evil of the Daleks. And I just realized you're the only one that can answer that. because That whole thing just went right over my head. Yeah, do you remember it all? I don't think they ever come back to it. No, I don't think so. I, I, think, think, I think once they're back in the Victorian era, they just kind of... Yeah. The whole storyline with the antique shop and everything. It's just, alright. So I'm, I'm not sure if he's an antique stealer. Again, listeners, let us know if that's the case, because I honestly don't. It took me aback a little bit to hear him refer to as an antique stealer when he was only that in the 20th century, when he was traveling through time. Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah. And it was his own stuff that he was selling, not antiques. Right. But <laughs> so he was just, yeah, he just had a shop. Well, when the wind destroys its nest, the bird will build another. <laughs> Actually, all those lines by the monks are kind of, they sound nice and Buddhist. There's at least got a little bit of verisimilitude to them, which is nice. All right, what else? What else do we have? Um, you, just in your notes, uh, you said there are subtle clues of the Yeti's true nature uh, being robotic. Um, 
yeah, like I said earlier, I I kind of picked up on them not being biological. Yeah, kind of early on. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit of a, a intentional mislead in that that was so obvious that they were going to be robots. I didn't expect there to be two more layers of really? control over them. Okay. Oh, they're the robots. Someone's controlling them. But I didn't think, you know, over the ad that there would be this ancient person who's actually controlling everything, who's actually being controlled oh, by an so elder god. So there were more layers than okay. anticipated. Danny, is that what you thought of it too? No, I was just think- <laughs> I was just thinking about the, the the levels of control there. It's like there's this whole hierarchy be- behind like every character here. It's like mm-hmm. it's nice how how it was developed all the way to to the end of the story. Yes. Like you don't know who the baddie is, which which I really liked. Yeah. Yeah, because of the lower parts of it, you have the Yeti, and at the top you have the upper GI. Right, and, and the Yeti, the Yeti are, are, are... sorry. There you go, Bart. <laughs> they're the the Yeti are, are like at the bottom of the totem pole here, and mm. they're like the most lethal ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. The weird thing that struck me though, and I kept finding myself looking at the story and thinking, how did that work? How did that work? How did they build the Yeti uh-huh. over 300 years mm-hmm. with the materials that they have in the Himalayas? I mean, they probably could have gotten Yeti skins from real Yeti, because they obviously the monks know yeah. about the Yeti. Um, but what about the other stuff? The control spheres, what are they made of? I, I have a question that, that may fit into that. Do we know... So we know that 300 years has passed since Dr was there but do we know when the story takes place um oh you mean this story Mm -hmm. i never said did i 1935 okay Mm. it's not a definite date which is going to get screwed up by the next story yeah is that in the book though no okay because i I was gonna say i don't remember seeing that and it's not in the televised version either that is kind of um extra textual information but it's 1935 and it's meant to be set in that same kind of time period as King Kong, scientific mm. expeditions at the turn of the century. Oh, I see. Which plays Mary Hell with continuity later, because uh, Jack Watling, Deborah Watling's father, was, I guess, in his 40s at the time, so Travers is in his 40s. The next story, according to lore, is set in 1975. It's 40 years later. Travers is, has to be in his 80s. But then he comes back later in a story set in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. He's eternal, too. Yeah, I guess so. Of course, by then, poor Jack Watling's blind and is barely, is very feeble, but he's still there. It's just... He some of that yak butter moisture. And his kept his skin young and supple. That was, a, that was a nice detail, wasn't it? We don't get to see characters eat in these books very often. And we even got... The doctor and Jamie having a nice old breakfast the in bacon the and eggs. Yeah. The bacon yeah. and eggs. Oh. Oh, and yeah. the porridge. And the porridge, mm-hmm. yeah. Which apparently comes out of a machine that does not produce those little candy bars that we found out about in the Daleks. Or the pills that come up later when Pertwee comes on. Yeah, there's a proper kitchen in the TARDIS as there is in the new series. So, even though we haven't seen it yet, it's got to be there. Yeah, yeah, well, cue up the sexist jokes about the new Doctor being a woman, so of course there's a kitchen in the TARDIS, ha! Huh? Uh, Fuck all of you. Alright, not all of you, just the ones who actually would make that joke. Yeah, sorry. 
we we love you, dear listeners. We really do. So write us good reviews on on iTunes because someone wrote us a bad one, and I'm still smarting over it. Yes. All right. Um. There's not a lot of sexism in this book either. There's a lot more sexism in the original. When Jamie finds out they're going to a monastery, he directly asks the doctor, "Oi, will they allow lassies there?" And he doesn't ask that question in the book. Not the worst question, though. Like no, single-sex at religious institutions. Like it that. never comes up, though. They think she's a devil woman, but apart from that, it's like, no, <laughs> well, she's a devil woman, but we don't think anything else of her. That this she's is not. She's not a devil woman because she's a woman. She's a devil woman because they think she's doing bad things. That's true. That's true. And I think Dick's probably got rid of that plot because it really wasn't working all that well in the televised version. Yeah. So why even include it? Yeah, that's a lot of it. But wasn't there enough to show their disorientation and paranoia? They don't know why the Yeti are behaving differently. They don't know what's going on. They're desperately casting about for some theory as to what has caused it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now there are a couple of other things that don't make sense. And the biggest thing that doesn't make sense is the name of the damn story. <laughs> Believe it or not. Victoria is from 1866. She is the one who says there yes. have been stories and legends about the Yeti and the Himalayas oh, for centuries. And how was she watching Looney Tunes in the 1860s? Yes, exactly. and I'm like, I actually, I assumed that, that the term Abominable Snowman was from Looney Tunes. No. And now I have no idea. 1921. Ah. So it was coined in 1921, so Travers would know that name. Not Looney Tunes, but was it Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer? Oh, well, yeah. That's it. It's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, one of those Frank, um, Rankin-Bass uh, stories. Um, she also claims the scientific expeditions have been trying to find the Yeti for ages. That's true in 1967. It may even be true in 1935. Not true in 1866. Hell no. So, yeah, there are a few little anachronisms in this. And finally, my biggest problem... Who's building those wooden beams in the cave that they bring down on the Yeti? Where are they finding trees in the Himalayas? I was not aware that it was populated with conifers or anything like that. It's uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, you know, every expedition oh. <laughs> that, looks, that goes looking for Noah's Ark finds it, but then somehow they can't find it again later. So one of uh, them found... The wood. They, well, like the hole in a cave, oh, like in an ice God. cave or something... Uh, it turned out later it was like put in by like a, a government project. It's <laughs> a sort of bait arc. Oh god! <laughs> so, yes, I just assumed that it was like a Ministry of Tourism thing where it they put in that. some kind of Yeti cave, for the, <laughs> Yeti cave for the for the tourists to explore. Yeah, that's probably it. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about: the illustrations because you had them in your PDFs. Yes. Yes. What did you think? Because those are the most Hardy Boys. Yes, Nancy Drew. I thought of Nancy Drew. Yes. yes. I love it. You love them? I love it. I love that that style. It's, I do because yeah. it reminds me of books that I read as a child. I, I'd probably find it pretty stilted if it was a new style to me. Right. Yeah, it's it's um, nostalgia, really. That's yeah. that's the appeal right. for me, is just nostalgia. It's true. Yeah. Well, a nice little visual break. Yeah. I, th- I thought they, they fit in well. Even if they got none of the characters right. Yeah, Jamie yeah, looks so weird. Either. And at one point, the Doctor and Victoria are in the background, and it's like, who are those people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's only one illustration that seemed to cover, really capture things well, and it's when the Yeti attacked the monastery, and you actually see bodies. Yes. And it's like, that is creepy stuff for a children's book. Yeah. But it works extremely well. So does, I have to say, Dix's prose is lovely. 
Tomney seemed to wake up with a jerk. Yeah, I think we've all been there before. Um, <laughs> yeah, at least I have, though. He thought wryly that no one wanted to know what he thought. Is that the rest of the audience you just alienated? Well, yeah. <laughs> the ones yeah. you've woken up with. Well, probably. <laughs> They're not listening to this. They don't want anything with me. Let's see, he thought wryly that no one wanted to know what he thought, even though his fate was under discussion. Did they have doormats in Jamie's time? He says he's going to make the Yeti into a I doormat. That was an amusing boast. It is, but where on earth... I guess the idea of having something to wipe your feet on is... I guess so. The Scottish must, because if it's not Scottish, it's crap. So there's That's lots the of Scottish around. That's translating. <laughs> Usually a, a throw, no, I'll make a throw rug would be the traditional thread. That would be it, yeah. Victoria looked at him affectionately. As usual, the doctor was being far too trusting. He always found it hard to think ill of anybody. Since bloody when? No, but it's not Hartnell Doctor anymore. Well, yeah, but the Troughton Doctor isn't exactly, you know... At the main gate, the unfortunate sentry was wishing he had never been born. Yeah, that poor sentry. He just gets hypnotized <laughs> right, left, and center. He's probably like that poor guy who guards the uh, black vaults of uh, unit whose memory is wiped at the end of every shift. <laughs> and it's starting to tell on him a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else? Something that I thought was com- not even confusing just made me go... What? <laughs> um, when they finally get into the secret control room, and in great detail, Dix describes the pyramid and the spear. Yes. And those are the last two damn things that they destroy. Yes. It's like, oh, you mean these giant things that are the, the, the pinnacles in the room? That <laughs> yes. Made that yeah. very important. You hit everything but that? Exactly. That would have been the first damn thing I would have hit. Oh, yeah. What? And I, it leaves me wondering what happened to all that G.I. spooge that's coming down the mountain. Yeah, the Ivan Ooze that yeah, was coming. That's spurting out of this uh, triangle. Like, I was talking about how there's more that could possibly be contained in the mountain, and I didn't expect that to wrap up a bit more. That's what kind of drives Travers crazy for a little bit. He's like, oh my god, oh my god, it was spurting ooze everywhere. Oh, it's going to take over the whole planet. <sighs> So I guess that's what the GI is trying to do. It's trying to just cover the entire planet with its spooge, and then... So that they can digest it. Yes, and then move across the universe, so... As you do. Like you do. I guess. Supposedly. Like Victoria looking around the TARDIS, like all the clothes, weapons, curios, and carvings from hundreds of different planets. Mm. There was something of the magpie in the Doctor, she thought. Yeah, there's even, uh, speaking of changes, there's even something that's captured on Telesnap. There's this thing that the Doctor brings out, and he can't tell what it is from the Telesnap because it's too badly shot. But he kind of goes, oh, it's so good to see this again for like a whole 30 seconds, and it's... Could be something significant, I don't know, but Dix doesn't bother with it because, yeah, he's going with the script. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it would be lovely to see, as you do in later stories, um, minutia from previous stories. Yeah, callbacks. Yeah. And just little Easter eggs and things. Exactly. Let me figure this out. As Travers watched the swollen pyramid cracked open, a bubbling glutinous substance shot with fiery colors began to ooze forth. So doesn't it always? Maybe it's a celiac GI. Uh, <laughs> it's been exposed to a glutinous substance, and it is not setting well. Let me tell you. Oh yeah, too much bread. Oh god. Oh. There, 
there was a there was a passage in here that I laughed out loud because of, of a reference to something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, page thirty-five. Uh, the huge hairy hands and the black snout were gorilla-like. Little red eyes and yellow fangs were like some like those of a bear. He remembered Victoria's description: something between a man, an ape, and a bear. <laughs> man, bear, pig from <laughs> South Park. Yes. Oh, yes. And especially something between a man and a bear and a pig. You can't have something three things in between yeah. three things. It's among three things, so of course that that offends me as a grammarian. <laughs> I mean, they are at least all omnivores. There yeah, is kind of a continuity. I suppose so, but damn. So, um... Should we go to Goodreads? Mm. Yeah, let me just look real quick and see if there's anything else Okay. in your notes. I will tell you while you're looking, there is a strange continuity error that's set up by the way the story ends, but I cannot tell you what it is yet. You It'll, cannot or you refuse I, I cannot. To. It is will it going come to ruin up, the next book? Yeah, it okay. will come up the next time the Yeti come up. And it'll be like, oh, wait a minute, how does he know about this when he didn't get to see the TARDIS? In fact, I was anticipating, you know, Travers following them all the way back to the TARDIS and then being like, oh no, you can't come with us, sorry, no. But yeah. I know it's a trope, but I do like the image of the map and moving the characters around yeah. the map, which we saw in the Celestial, some of that in Celestial Toymaker. Mm-hmm. There's a, an X-Men cover from the 90s where it's, I think, I forget which of the villains, maybe Mr. Sinister, who's moving the X-Men around, and he's actually yes. moving Bishop specifically with sort of a visual Exactly. It's, it's, I know it's been done, but I always find it a wonderful, chilling... I'll make it too, but I do wonder how the Yeti know what to do when they get to where they've been moved to. Yes. I just I just love the, the idea of the, the great intelligence painting pewter figures. Mm-hmm. Yes. To use yes. <laughs> Uh, that was early on. That was when they were still trying to make the Yeti. And it took 300 years. And who constructed <laughs> the Yeti? That's the biggest thing. Who constructed yeah. them? The monks would not have done it. So was it Padmasadvavar sitting in there in his inner sanctum? Oh, that's what it was. He probably was hypnotizing the monks and getting them to do it and then wiping their memories. Probably. Wow, that's, that's creepy. That is really seriously creepy. We shouldn't have to fill that in. No, we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. But then, that's true of all of these books, even the ones we like. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews, uh, reviews, online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may have your review written out, uh, read out loud here, rather. The average rating for this story out of five stars, this book, is 3.83, which is slightly uh, higher. That's, that's yeah, really high. Yeah, that's higher than Tomb of the Cybermen. That's pretty high. That's getting up to Power of the Daleks yeah, levels. This one also has a huge amount of ratings for some reason, but not many actually glowingly written reviews. Because it's number one. It's I guess the first so. one. It's the first one. Well, Tom Hodden didn't do a review, but we, he's a constant listener and, of course, a faithful good reader. And he says in our discussion group, 
This is one of those stories where reading the book is more comfortable than revisiting the audio because on paper the strengths of the story are drawn out. You can imagine the show made today with an ethnically diverse cast and filming on a mountainside that is more convincingly Tibetan than the admittedly spectacular of its own right Snowden in Wales. There are times the monks do feel a little flattened and stereotypical, but by and large they're more rounded characters on the page and they get to be on screen. Victoria is at her peak, managing to be both inquisitive and vulnerable with her screaming girl moments used to suggest that she is the companion who does what she has to despite being understandably scared. Jamie gets a little more charm than he's shown in other books. Best of all, the villain of the piece gets to feel much more of an otherworldly, perhaps even Lovecraftian menace. An ethereal, intangible intelligence is always going to be a difficult villain to portray on screen, but that has great potential for the page. As well as it works here, it sometimes feels frustratingly just short of something truly terrifying. If this had been written with a little more embellishment from what was seen on screen, we might have had truly horrifying descriptions of what it was like for the other characters whose minds were touched or overpowered by the great intelligence. To feel the invader shifting through their thoughts or to lose control of their own bodies as they became a puppet, or to feel the parasite burrowing deep down into their very being. Yeah, it goes back to that scene with the the woman who's been a child this whole time. It's exactly like that. Adam James gives the, the book three stars. And says, as a Doctor Who fanatic and an unabashed Patrick Troughton Second Doctor supporter, Target Publishing's novelizations of long-lost Doctor Who stories are absolute godsends. And with the newly restored Web of Fear now available, and its prequel, The Abominable Snowman, thanks, Adam. You gave away which story it is they're going to come back in. (sighs) Almost entirely erased from existence, I could continue on not having experienced the abominable snowman in any shape and form. So while Terence Dick's retelling completely reinforces the formulaic Troughton-era base-under-siege plotlines, yeah, it kind of is a base-under-siege story again. And guess what? The next one? Again. Again. I loved every beautiful page of this novel. Its mere existence make, brings me shameless joy. My nerdy heart is having palpitations at the thought of reliving each and every long-lost Doctor Who story with these wonderful books. I just may be the happiest boy in all the land. And yet only three stars, Adam? Adam James? He might just disintegrate in a starburst of joy if he reads a five-star. I still actually very much enjoy that. I feel that I feel what he feels. I agree. And finally, the wonderfully named Reading Rainbow Reloaded. Also gives it three stars and says this is a novel based off one of the lost stories of the second Doctor who is Fantastic Pat and Franklin's era, 1966-69. It was interesting to me to read a novel based off stuff from the really old eras of the show so that you can just imagine past the limitations of 1960s sci-fi TV, especially Doctor Who. That works a little bit with this story, but not enough to make me feel like I'm really... (laughs) Sorry, like I'm really there. I read on the back that the author Terrence Dix, who wrote the fantastic TV story Genesis of the Daleks, no, he bloody didn't, wanted to make the books feel like you were reading a TV show. It's not like that's too much of a bad thing, because that show was entertaining enough, but for me, there wasn't enough description to make me actually imagine what they were going for in the show. It just felt like they were saying the mountaintops are beautiful, and just making us think up the rest. Which is okay, but I think that for a novel, it was all very surface level. Let's go to your opinions on it. Danny, out of five stars, how many stars would you give this? I, I would give this a 3.5. Okay. 
Um, when I first started reading it, I think the first like two or three chapters, I didn't think much of it. I, I thought it was just going to be standard boilerplate, you know, there's a baddie, here, here's who he is, we're going to solve it, hijinks ensue. But it, it kind of, by the end, kind of took a lot of dramatic twists and turns that were nice and subtle. It, it very much felt like a science fiction show. Okay. All right. It, it, to me, it kind of had notes of uh, The Thing with, you know, oh, an, yeah. an alien assuming other people's bodies and, mm-hmm. you know, not as much body horror as The Thing, oh, yeah. but, but still, it, it did have that, you know, sci-fi feel to it. Well, wait a couple years. In fact, wait exactly three years and, and Doctor Who will be doing The Thing. Its own version of it. Yeah, except with plants, rather than... It's kind of terrifying. Dalton, out of five. Uh, I, I'm on the same page. 3.5 for me as well. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, having read uh, a lot of other uh, Terrence Six books, this one does feel like he cares. It, it, it's written better. And yeah, I really enjoyed seeing the characters interplay reading about the, the great intelligence and kind of, of how it, it was controlling people, I found that interesting. Yeah, there was, I mean, there were some things that had me questioning and things in my head. Like I said earlier, I thought it could have been Daleks or Cybermen or something else. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was it was enjoyable. Okay. Um, so, yeah, 3.5. All right. And Allison? I go 2.5, but that's, you know, for very you, positive high. for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought that you know, sort of the sound design he created in my head was terrific, as well as the visual landscapes. Much much better from what you're describing than the actual episodes. A good, good cold, lean, rough, desolate landscape, good sense of menace. So um, I, I thought it actually was boilerplate, but in a way that I enjoyed. Like, yes, these are tropes, but you know they are repeated because they are enjoyable to read through. I thought it was a good ride. Okay. <clears throat> and as for me, I I'm I was shocked by this book. I actually gave it a four out of five. Not only is it one of the best Dick's novelizations I've read, but also it was one that I was expecting to hate because I've always been bored by the story. Because the story is boring. It's incredibly difficult to listen to six episodes of almost total silence, punctuated by those damn spheres going. Whoo, 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 whoo. Yeah, they make this weird whistling sound, which is terrifying. But that's about it. Um, that being said, Dix does care about this, and it's making me look forward to other books from earlier in the 70s when he was still making the effort, because if this is Dix when he's making an effort, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, it's absolutely on, uh, absolutely worth it. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we look at the Ice Warriors. Ooh, yes, I know it's going to get really cold around here. <laughs> Even with the... Yes, we may, we may have to do it in this room again because the AC in here is just terrifying. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in one word with no spaces. You can also visit our continuing pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch episodes of our first 12 videos of our first 12 episodes on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter at dwtargetbc. Subscribe to us via the Podbean provider of your choice. The Podbean provider of your choice. We're not on Podbean. 
I've been listening to Podbean all week, but, but we're not on it because they ask too much damn money. If all else fails you, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I did not Google, I did not giggle on camera at all. Just about, this stick was very caring. (laughs) This this dick felt like it cared. (laughs) Even more caring dicks in the future. I did not giggle, is what I'm saying. Oh, I see. Well, you know I'm going to put that at the end of the episode. It's still recording. Of course.